Amen is right. Happy New Year's Two Cities Church. It's 2023. It's the Michael Jordan year. Are you excited? I hope you guys are excited. When you see that video of Yi Ming, he likes to go by Barry as his English name. Here's what I want you to know. Barry is the bullseye. The bullseye is not buildings. The bullseye is not a bigger budget. The bullseye is more berries. People whose lives have been transformed by the gospel. It's a new year, so I know you're about your new schedule and your new plan and your new year's resolutions. And here we're most excited about new life. And uh, what we, the only thing probably that we get more excited about than new life is people who experience new life and then help other people experience new life, which is what you saw with Barry. So guys, it's 2023. Before we look forward, and we're going to do that in a second and have a whole vision time, and I hope you're going to enjoy that. But I want to look back and talk about Hold the Rope. Okay, Hold the Rope is our annual end of the year offering. If you're new, you're watching online, you're visiting, let me tell you what this is. This is this thing that we do. It's kind of crazy at the end of every year. We basically say, hey, you guys are already generous, but could you give a one-time gift above and beyond what you normally give? And we're going to keep none of it. We're going to help other people go further, faster, locally, nationally, globally with this money. Locally, here's why we do this. And I, I just want to remind you one more time. Why do, we, why do we give money away locally? One, we love our city. Two, the ministries in our city that are doing the hardest and best work are often those ministering not just to the spiritually poor, but the financially poor. And you know this, but if you minister to the uh, financially poor, they can never repay you. So these ministries will never be self-sustaining, and so we want to come alongside them. Uh, the reason that we give nationally is we love America, and we believe the best thing for America and the best thing for any city is more good gospel-preaching churches. Like when you think about Seattle, or San Francisco, or San Diego, or San Antonio, okay? When you think about any city, how would you pray for that city? Most people go, I have no idea. Here's how you pray for a city. You pray for the churches in that city. So with the money that you all gave, we're giving it away to help plant more churches in our nation. And then finally, we wanna increase our global footprint. We believe we don't serve a tribal deity who's just over Winston-Salem or just over North Carolina. We serve a global God, and we wanna see the global imprint and impact of the gospel expand. So here's what we did. We just thought, we had to make some plans beforehand of like genuine, in general, what we thought might come in so we could have some idea of what we we're gonna give away. And we thought, well, we have a $5 million budget. Man, if, we, if our church gave 10% of our annual budget as one-time gifts, that would be like knocking it out of the park. So we kind of said, well, let's, the economy's crazy. Let's not plan for 500,000. Let's plan for a little bit. Let's be wise. Let's plan for a little less than that. Well, you guys ended up giving $718,795.49. Which is so awesome. Here's why that's awesome. We're going to be, a, a, be able to do everything we wanted to do, but give more to our partners and even increase uh, some of our partnerships and start some new partnerships. So because of your generosity, for example, Compassion International, which I want you to remember uh, about, okay? Many of you were there when we did our Compassion Weekend. We sponsored like close to 430 kids. Well, we reached out to them and we basically said, we want to do something big with Hold the Rope. And they wrote us an email back. We said, we want to do something big in Uganda. And they said, well, there's like, you know how it works on this stuff, right? There's the, there's the silver option and there's the gold option and then there's the platinum option, Right? They're like, well, for 15,000, you could do X, Y, Z in Uganda. And we're like, well, that sounds good. And then they said, well, for 30,000, you could do this, this, and this, and this. And then they said, for 60,000, you could plant a church that's gonna have a compassion project. Now, what we were thinking we were gonna do based on what we were anticipating was the 15 or the 30,000. But we're doing the 60, let's go. Thank you for helping to plant a church with a compassion project. 
in Uganda, very, very exciting. And then guys, we're just able, I just wanna thank you personally because I get to make a lot of these phone calls and it's the one time a year I feel like a super rich person. I just call people and tell them we're gonna give them tens of thousands of dollars. Um, I, I called two of our partners this week, we're gonna, well, I called them all, but, but um, and so did some other staff. We're gonna, and we'll tell you more stories, but we called Thomas West, who's in London, who you saw a video, and we called um, Jeremy Dagger, who's in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And you know, both of them are just in a very hard place. And we were able to call them in the first week of the year and say, Two Cities Church loves you. Here's $75,000 each for you guys to go further faster as a church. So I just wanna say thank you for your generosity. Now, that's looking back. I want us to look forward. Grab your ministry plan for a second, okay? Uh, I know, big intro today, sorry, a little longer sermon. There's no service afterwards. You guys will be okay, okay? Here it is, look, this is it. This is good language. Uh, it's a ministry plan, okay? You gotta know the difference in your marriage and with your kids between a plan and a promise, right? Not exact same thing. A plan is more than a maybe. Um, we're, this is the direction we're headed in, and here's what I want you to know. We wanted to, if you open it up on the left, is a letter from from me, I wanna thank you in advance for both of you who are gonna read that letter. Um, that is my attempt to tell you guys the sermon series we're heading uh, toward this year. So we don't normally do this. I, I'm normally 12 to 18 months ahead in, in where we're going as a church in the preaching schedule, but we don't normally always share it. This year we decided to share it. So we're gonna be in Joshua for about 13 weeks, uh, looking at welcoming and walking in the promises of God. And we think that's great as we head toward our building. And then we're gonna be in Ephesians for 16 weeks, looking at how do we strengthen the church and strengthen the family. And then over the summer, we're gonna be in jo uh, Joseph in the book of Genesis, looking at his life and how do you walk through suffering and how do you deal with difficult family members and how do you learn to forgive and reconcile. And then finally, as we really begin to zone in on our future uh, building and, and transition, we're gonna be in the book of Hebrews because so much is gonna be changing, we wanna look at what doesn't change, which is the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. Then on the right, right side there, we just gave you, I can't go over all the dates, I gave you some of the big key dates. You can see that March 4th and 5th, J.D. Greer's gonna be here. If you don't know who that is, he is the, uh, the pastor of the Summit Church who helped to plant us. Uh, very excited, he's gonna be here preaching live all four services. Uh, as well, you're gonna see that we have a men's and women's event, okay? You go, why do the women get two nights? Because there's more of them. That's why. It's actually gonna be the same speaker. It's gonna be the exact same talk. We just wanna make sure everyone can make it in there. Uh, the reason we're doing a men's and women's uh, night is we have, uh, we've always believed this, but we're trying to figure out how do we address the unique temptations, the unique challenges, and the unique identities of being a man or being a woman. So we're excited about that. Uh, mom, dad, the reason that we put all age and stage ministries and kids ministries on there is so that you would know, we want you to know months, six, eight, nine months in advance where things are happening. We think mission trips and camps and retreats are important. And so we just, we wanna remove any barrier or any boundary or any, dare I say, excuse of why you might not, or your kids couldn't be able to. We wanna let you know, we're letting you know Kids Week eight months in advance so that you can be there, be present, make it a priority. We're, gonna, we're bringing back our prayer nights. Those are very, very special. I hope you'll partake in those this year. And next week, we're starting a 21-day prayer emphasis. You come next week, instead of getting a plan, you get a, a whole prayer guide that we're gonna walk through. So it's gonna be very, very, uh, very, very important. And then if you flip on the back, um, so vision always has two components. You, you know this, but um, whether you're thinking of your family or your business or yourself, it's, it's where are we going and what is my role? That's the two questions of vision. Where are we headed and what is my role? And so on the back, we just said, this is what every person who's, a, really this is just what Christians do, but this is the way we talk about every person at Two Cities, what should they do? The first thing we just said, worship in person weekly 
Basically, if you're in town, please be in church. You know, and this is a little awkward for anyone watching online, but we don't believe in online church. Um, it doesn't exist. It's not a real thing. Now, there is online content, and there is online ministry, and there is online teaching. There's no such thing as online church. It doesn't exist. And so we're saying, would, would everybody make being in church if they're in town a priority 2023? That is the priority of worship. Secondly is the priority of community. Would you open up your Bible? Would you open up your life? In other words, what do you have to do to fight for being a part of meaningful community at Two Cities this year? It might mean that you have to try out two or three community groups. It might mean that you have to get in a different community group. It might mean that you have to work on your personality. <laughs> if everywhere you go it smells, maybe you're the one that stinks, right? This is a kind of the thing. <laughs> Every group is so hard for me. Okay. Um, the, the third priority is the priority of stewardship. The priority of stewardship is how do I leverage the time, the talent, the treasure that God has given me for his glory and the good of others? And then finally, it's the principle of witness. How do I, where I live, learn, work, and play, how do I know Christ and make him known? How do I invest in people who are far from God, close to me? Now, some of you have come, you know, you're like, ah, this is too much for me. Uh, I'm not even part of this church yet. Let me just encourage you, we've got the weekender coming up. Uh, weekenders are on-ramp and in-road into the life of our church, and so that's gonna be January 27th and 28th. You'll get to hear about that. And uh, that's a great opportunity. How do you deepen your life? You deepen your life by deepening your commitments. And uh, the weekenders are a great place to decide what you wanna be committed to. So let me pray for us. And then we ha we're gonna dive into <clears throat> Moses' final sermon in Deuteronomy 30. Let's pray. Lord, we are just so grateful. It's grateful to celebrate new life in Barry. Grateful to celebrate generosity in our church and the ability to help people locally, nationally, and globally. Excited for where we're headed. Lord, I pray that you would give each of us a picture of the future that produces passion in the present, that you would give us a vision for our personal lives, a vision for our families, a vision for our community groups, a vision for our church. And Lord, may for some of us even give us a vision for our city. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, guys, we're doing something kind of strange. We're doing a vision weekend. Uh, not all churches do vision weekends. You don't have to do a vision Sunday. You don't have to do a vision sermon. You don't have to do a vision series. I don't, I don't even have a Bible verse for this. This is not even something that we did the first three years we were here. This is something we've done for the last few years. Why have we done a vision weekend? It's because we want to end up somewhere on purpose. Everybody ends up somewhere in life. Very few people end up somewhere on purpose, right? Very few people are like focused and fixed and headed in a direction. Most people are floating right? I mean, not you, I'm sure, but, but some people are. And what, what's interesting here is we're, we're trying to ask the question, okay, well, where do we want to go? And, and I had a pastor, he said this, he said, I think the number one reason pastors never do a vision Sunday is if they got up there, they'd have nothing to say. Would, maybe the reason that most dads never have a vision dinner with their family is they have nothing to say. Do you have a vision for your family? Do you have a vision for whatever little corner of the world God's given you to be a king or queen over? It's like, all right, I've got this is my responsibility and this is my home and this is my neighborhood and these are my kids and this is my employees. Do you have a vision? Well, what I want us to see today is the need for vision. If you'll turn to Deuteronomy 30, I'll meet you there in a minute. In Habakkuk 2.2, you'll see this on the screen. There's this really awesome verse on vision where God says to his prophet, he says this phrase, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. I want us to see two things about vision today and then we're gonna go to Deuteronomy 30. Vision is meant to be plain. Do you see it right there? Make it plain. 
And vision is meant to be portable so that the one who has it can run with it. I want to give you a vision today. It's not my vision. It's not Two Cities' vision. It's a vision that runs, uh, arises from Scripture. I want it. I hope it's going to be plain. In other words, you're going to see it. I hope it's going to be portable. That means it's memorable. Hopefully, maybe it's emotional. And it's actually something that you can take with you, and it works everywhere. So you can take that down. Here's where we're going to be. We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 30. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses preaches his final sermon. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy is the first sermon series in the Bible. Every once in a while, people go, sermon series? That's a new idea. I've never been to a church that does sermon series. Moses was the first guy to do a sermon series. Uh, what, what he does is he basically summarizes Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers into three long sermons that he preaches to simplify and summarize everything that happened, because those are hard books. Some of you have quit your Bible reading in a year, <laughs> right in Exodus, Leviticus, or Numbers. So he says, let me summarize all this. He preaches three sermons. We're looking at the third sermon. We're halfway, we're going to parachute into Deuteronomy 30. Uh, we're looking at the third sermon, and we're halfway through the sermon. And Moses, the sermon, let me just say where it's going to crescendo, because this is the vision. The, the, the climax of the sermon is the vision that Moses is going to give us, which is the vision that we're going to have this year for each individual. Because I'm not giving us today like a vision like, here's what two cities church, whatever that means is going to do. I'm saying, this is what you're going to do. You, not your spouse, not your kid. This is what if you do, and guess what? If we all do this, then Two Cities Church did do this. And here's what it is. Choose life and not death with your daily decisions. Now, it sounds kind of silly, because who's going to raise their hand and go, I chose death? Because actually, here's how Americans think about death. Americans think death is what happens at the end of your life. Most people think what I do is I live, and then at some point I die and if I get sick or disabled or I go insane or I don't know, there's a couple things at the end of my life where I get in an accident, then maybe I have like a several weeks to year period in which I'm dying. But for the most part, I, I live all my life and then death happens at the very end. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible has a much more sophisticated idea. It talks about life and death are two paths that we are on. The book of Proverbs, this is the whole book of Proverbs, the entire book of Proverbs, is a dad talking to his son going, hey, listen, there's these two women, they're both beautiful. One's Lady Wisdom, one's Lady Folly. You're gonna be attracted to both of them. One is leading you down a path of life, one is leading you a path of death. This is the way Jesus talks. I am the way and the truth and the life. It's the language of the path which leads to a person. And so what I wanna do today is I, I want each of us to decide, are we gonna choose life or are we gonna choose death? And I'm gonna use some synonyms for that because it's hard to, what does it mean to choose life and death? How about this question? Are you making things better or are you making things worse? And I know it's like, you know, you don't want to admit that maybe you're the type of person who there's a dark side of you that doesn't mind making things worse sometimes because it gives you an opportunity to complain. It's not obvious to me that everybody always decides to make things better. It's not obvious to me that everybody wants everything to get better. Do you want things to get better in your marriage? That would be the first step. Do you want things to get better with your mother-in-law? That would be the first step. Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves. I can't, I can't go there yet because what he's gonna do first, in verse one, Moses is gonna do what all good gospel preaching does, which is tell us that we're the problem and we can't fix ourselves. So he's gonna get to you gotta choose life, but he first needs to tell you, you can't choose life in your own strength. I'll show you here, look at verse one. Um, so in verse one, he says this. Uh, and, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord has driven, the God, Lord, 
where the Lord your God has driven you. You're like, what is this about? Again, I told you we're parachuting in. Moses is preaching a sermon, basically telling them you're gonna get into the promised land. And this is helpful to know because this is what happens in every generation of Christians. Because have you ever wondered like how did, whenever you drive by and you see like these beautiful church buildings, I always think the same thing, someone paid for that. Like someone believed, someone raised money. Like how, why is there, why are there seven people there now? Well, we know the answer. One generation believes, the next generation assumes, the next generation forgets, the final generation forsakes. And you have to, we'll get into that next week. You have to work unbelievably hard against that. Like so hard, it has to be on the front of your mind all the time to create first generation faith. So hard to do. So what Moses is saying is, guys, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna get into the land, you're gonna be very prosperous, and then you're gonna forget about me. Or you're gonna forget about God, is what God's saying through Moses. And, uh, and so he's basically gonna say, here, here's the way we would say it, knowing the whole Bible now. He's gonna say, guys, it's really exciting because the book of Joshua is coming, but then there's the book of Judges. And if you know your Bible, the book of Judges is one of the saddest books, one of the darkest books in the Bible. And so here's what Moses is saying, and here's what I want you to hear is a weird way to kind of encourage you. <laughs> uh, in the beginning of the year, Moses basically in chapter 29 and in chapter 30, he's gonna say, the problem with us is not that we don't know what to do, it's that we don't have the power to do it. I'll show you this. So there's a guy named Jason Needleman, I think is his name, not a Christian. He wrote a book a couple years ago called Why Can't We Be Good? And he's wrestling with the question. He's not a Christian. He's like, guys, I don't get it. We got all the world religions. He doesn't understand that Christianity is unique and he doesn't understand salvation. He's like, hey, the world religions kind of tell us, I mean, they're different, but ethically they tell us what to do. He's like, and then not only that, we've got Socrates and we've got Aristotle and we've got Plato. It's not like, and then we have like, thousands of years of written down human history. It's like, guys, we know how to do marriage. We know how to raise kids. The problem is not that we don't know what to do, it's that we don't have the power to do it. In fact, here's another interesting thing. When I was, took biblical counseling class, and I'm not a good counselor, but, but when I took biblical counseling, uh, my professor taught me a hack, taught us a hack of counseling. He said, here's a hack in counseling. Sit down, don't say anything. Just ask a couple good questions, be very, very quiet. He said, and people will do two things they will tell you what's wrong with them. I'm not saying in the most convoluted, comprehensive, I'm saying for the average person, they actually know what's wrong, they'll tell you if you just will be quiet. They'll just tell you. He said, here's the other interesting thing, they also know what they need to do. I found this to be true. Most people know what they need to do, they just don't have the power to do it. I need to confess this to my wife, but I don't have the power to do it. I need to confront my son. I need to stop drinking so much. Wouldn't that be amazing if you could just have a conversation with yourself and you would do it? Right? We'd all be in unbelievable shape if we could do that. It's like, yeah, all right, here's what you're going to do this year. Right? None of us can do that. We're, we are terrible bosses and we are worse employees. Okay? That's the relationship we have with ourselves. And so he's saying, you can't do this. And so what he's gonna show you here, I'll show you this. He's gonna show, we, we need a, a power outside of us. Look here. And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with your heart and with all your soul. And so he's gonna talk about repentance, but I want you to go to verse six. Drop down to verse six. He says this, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. So he's gonna talk about how does real change happen? Because he's gonna tell them to choose life and death, but they can't do it in their own strength. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. 
And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecute you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. So here's what he's saying. Before you can choose life, you need to experience new life in your heart. And he uses the language of circumcised heart. Now, if you're like me and you've, you know your Bible somewhat well or you've heard this before, you may romanticize your heart being circumcised. I mean, guys, this is gross language. We think of it as like, it's so beautiful. This is, and you're right, this is the promise of the new covenant. So in the Old Testament, there are, Ezekiel 36 would be another place where there's this promise. God is gonna circumcise our hearts. But guys, do you guys know what circumcision is? <laughs> this is always an awkward conversation when like your 10-year-old comes in and usually goes to mom. Mom, what's circumcision? And mom says, ask your dad, right? <laughs> we say here, if you have any questions about circumcision, Pastor Dave, Pastor Caleb would love to talk to you afterwards. <laughs> um, but circumcision is, it, it's, it's painful, it's personal, it's bloody, it's intimate. Circumcision in part says, I'm going to be involved in the part of your life you don't want me to be involved in. I'm going to be in the closest, most sensitive, most personal areas of your life. But then heart is also interesting. So circumcision is this bloody, painful process. And your heart is, well, that's the center of who you are. It's the sum and center and seat of your emotions and your will and your reason. And here's what God, look, if I could, if I could summarize it, here's what God's saying through Moses. You need to have heart surgery if you're going to obey me. Now, who here wants to have heart surgery? I think it's like after maybe brain surgery, it's probably like the least type of likely type of surgery we'd want to have. You know, you got to have surgery on your leg. Okay. Arm. Okay. Foot. Okay. Heart. No, thank you. You actually have to get, and I've met, we've had, we've had a couple situations in our church where one of the spouses has come and said, hey, you know, my wife or my husband needs to have surgery and he doesn't want to. You ever know a couple like that? It's like, he needs to have surgery, she needs to have surgery, she doesn't want to. It's like, you have to get to the place to go, my condition is so bad, I need to go under the knife. That's not an easy place to get to for people. Christianity starts with, man, my spiritual condition is so bad that I need heart surgery. And this is so helpful to know because what happens, a lot of times I'm talking to, some of the most difficult conversations I've had in my six years of being the pastor here is talking to people who have teenagers um, who are rebellious. One, because it's very hard to talk to people about their kids. Have you ever tried to talk to people about their kids? I mean, it's hard to talk to people, even like your brother, right, about your nephew or your niece. It's like, well, you're the uncle, right? It's like, you still don't get to talk about them. It's just like, it's, there's no talking to people about their kids until they're desperate enough to ask you. Well, anyway, so what happens is there's, there's these kids and they're rebelling and they wonder, why is my son dating a non-believer? And why is he addicted to drugs? And why is he addicted to pornography? And why doesn't he want to come to church? And why doesn't she want to be in Christian community? And they want to believe during all this that their kid's a Christian because it brings up a whole bunch of other kind of questions if you have to say, my kid isn't a Christian. But normally, and it's almost like inception, I, they have to discover it themselves through conversation. My daughter's not a Christian. That's the issue. That's the, there's a heart change. Oh, she doesn't want to get baptized. I wonder why someone wants... The issue is they're not a believer. A believer wants to testify to their faith. I don't know why my, my, why are my kids lying to me all the time. Why are they rebelling against me as a parent? That's what unbelievers do. That is not what the Spirit of God and somebody makes that person do across time. We're not saying that people who have believing kids have perfect kids. 
But we're saying that a lot of times we just are willfully blind and we won't admit the big problem with our kids is they haven't had the circumcision of the heart. So Moses is saying that's that before we can choose life or death or any of these other great things we want for our lives and do New Year's resolutions and not put the resolve in our own will, we need a heart surgery. The second thing he says, so it's interesting, he says we need something inside of us and then we need something outside of us. Inside of us is heart surgery. We also would call that being born again, experiencing the new birth. Um, the, the thing outside of us is we need the word of God. Look at verse 11. I'll show you this. Verse 11, he says this. For this commandment, notice he goes from the inside to the outside. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. See, the person who is not a believer, that's how they view the word of God. One of the ways you can tell is your heart been circumcised. It's how do you view the word of God? When I was a recovering, I told you I'm a recovering Catholic. When I used to, you know, I was a Catholic boy. Uh, they give you, in eighth grade, they give you a big red Bible. I never read it. It's not that I couldn't read. It's not that I didn't read. I read other books. I didn't have any desire to read the Bible. And when I tried to read the Bible a couple times, I just found it hard. I found it archaic. I found it confusing. As soon as I became a believer, all I wanted to do was read my Bible. And it became something that I could understand. If you, if you ever, if someone's reading their Bible and they don't understand it, there might be some questions. One, and I'm not being funny here, are you educated? That would be, a, do you know how to read? Do you know how to put sentences together? Like they, it's not easy. Lots of people are afraid of books nowadays. Books are intimidating, so that would be one question. But the other question would be, are you really a believer? Because if you're a believer, you love the Bible. Maybe you need to do audio Bible. But man, believers love the Bible because the spirit of God inside them, which circumcised their hearts, wrote the word of God that's outside of them. And when those two meet, it's like lost friends. It's like two magnets. And so what happens is he says that the unbeliever thinks the commandment of God is far and hard. Right? You'll hear this is how the average American views the Bible. It's primitive. It's archaic. It's outdated. Wasn't it written by a bunch of old dead guys who had a very small view of the world? Well, look what he says here. He says, it is not in heaven that you should say, verse 12, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. So he says, it's not in heaven. The word of God is not something you have to go get. The word of God is something that comes to you. This is the great, tr the great truth of God. There's a couple things like you have to go, well, what are the, how would I say it? What are the first things you have to believe about God? Well, it's usually one of two or three things, that he exists, obviously, that he's good, and that he would decide to speak. And in fact, what we have, by the way, in Genesis 1 is the speaking God. That's what we have. The God who forfeits his personal privacy to let him be known. But then he says this. He goes, you don't have to go to the word. The word, the word comes to you. But then look, this is an interesting verse. Verse 13. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Why does he mention the sea? Well, the sea is a huge part of the story of Israel and the Exodus. What sea is he talking about? The Red Sea. He's saying, quit thinking that the word you need is something that happened in the past. Right? It, Israel always wrestled with wanting to go back under slavery and live in Egypt. I love what I heard one pastor said. He said, if you want to go back to Egypt, you better learn how to swim. Because there ain't no split in the Red Sea on the way back. There are no miracles in rebellion. There are only miracles on your way to the promised land in obedience. So here's what he says. And this is, I think, a challenge to all of us. Verse 14, but the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. Look at this. 
so that you can do it. I think what happens is a lot of Christians have, they've ha- they've, all Christians have experienced the new birth, the circumcision of the heart. And then I think what happens is somewhere along the way, Satan tricks us or discourages us and makes us think we cannot obey the word of God. Like, I don't know exactly how it happens. It, it has something to do with this. I think, I think we've overemphasized forgiveness and we've not emphasized freedom in Christ enough. And you can't overemphasize forgiveness. Here's a, hear, hear me say this. Here's what I mean. I think a lot of people view 2023 and they think something like this. I'm probably going to struggle with the same things I struggled with last year in mostly the same ways, maybe a little less. And I'm such a broken, messed up sinner with this old man or old woman that I got to deal with like my own flesh and I'm, I'm going to... But thank God for the cross because every time I mess up, I'm going to go to the cross and God's going to forgive me. And that's half of the truth. And that's a great truth. The other truth is Christ died to set you free. And you actually can obey the word of God. And if the Bible tells you to do something, it's going to give you the power to do it if you're a believer. People all the time read the Bible and it says, forgive people. And they think, well, not my father. It's like, well, no, there's not. Most people think there's an asterisk next to certain verses and they flip to the back of the Bible and there's a picture of them. You're the exception to this. It's like, man, the Sermon on the Mountain, Jesus is serious. Yes, that's a sermon to show us our sin and it's a sermon to be obeyed. And so I think that the transition that happens in a person's life is when they say, I've, I've experienced new life in Christ and I actually read the Bible and I believe that by the power of God, I can obey this. So what happened at the Reformation, which I won't get into this long, long story, but the Reformation happened in the 1500s. It was basically the rediscover of Christianity in Europe. And what happened, because the Gutenberg Press came out at the same time, we get to see the first, and so the Catholic Church kind of begins to have all these sects of Christianity that come out of it. Luther leads one and Calvin leads one and all these other things. And, we, and then they get their own Bible in their own language, these communities do. And so we can watch, it's really neat, if you study church history, you can watch the first communities kind of discover the Bible on their own. Like, what did the Lutherans do? And what did the Anabaptists do? And well, when you watch that, the people's lives who really changed and the people who really made an impact were the people who believed the Bible was meant to be obeyed and could be. They were the ones that read it and was like, yeah, I think we should do what the book of Acts says. I think we should tell our friends and our neighbors. In fact, how many of us, have you ever like seen somebody like radically come to faith in Christ? They start doing all the things that Christians should be doing and we try to stop them. So no, no, you don't evangelize at work, not like that. You don't confess your sins to people like that openly. No, you don't. We start to try to figure out how to live a Christianity that's more palatable. Well, he tries to set all this up to tell us one thing in verse 15. And here it is. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. So he, there it is. I picked this in part because it's getting us ready for Joshua. I picked it in part because could you pick any two bigger themes than life and death? Psychologists who study you know, life and death, they basically say that half of your life, you're fighting for life and half of your life you're fighting against death as a general rule. So until you're about 40, 45 years old, you're like, you're trying to build life. Like I need to get married, I need to find a career, I need to make some money, I need to have some kids. It's life, 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 life. And then you get in your mid 40s to 50s and you start thinking, well, how long am I gonna do this? 
I should probably retire. I wonder if my kids are going to have kids. Maybe I should, I need to slow, I wonder if I'm going to get sick like my mother got sick. And you start to have all of these end of life questions. So the first part of your life, you deal with life a lot. And the last part of your life, you deal with death a lot. Well, what is life and death? Well, biblically, there are four types of life in Scripture. I know this is deep, but it's good to know. There are four types of life in Scripture. Paul says you have this present life. That's your biological life. We don't know how long this present life is for each person. But the Bible says your present life is very, very short. And then the Bible says you have eternal life. Christians do. Eternal life happens not when you die, but when you believe. A lot of people think, oh, I want to die and have eternal life. It's like if you're a Christian, you already have eternal life. Eternal life, Jesus says, happens the moment a person believes. There's resurrection life, that's different. Resurrection life is what happens when you die, go to heaven, are in the new heavens and new earth, and are in your new body, that's called resurrection life. And then Jesus gives us a fourth type of life in John 10.10, the abundant life. You don't need to raise your hand, but I would imagine most Christians in this room have, well, all Christians in this room have eternal life. But how many Christians in this room would say they feel like they're genuinely in 2022, they live the abundant life. Well, I think the abundant life is when you choose life. And what is life? It seems to be, according to this passage, choosing the good. Choosing good words, choosing good works. It seems to be a commitment to growth because that's what life does. Things that are alive, they grow. But how about death? Let's just compare it to death. We live in a culture of death right now in America. So where is the least safe place to live in America? in your mother's womb, you know, not in the inner city of Chicago. There is a more dangerous place to live, your mother's womb. So that, that you're the most innocent, youngest, silent, and most vulnerable people in our society can be killed legally. That's a culture of death at the beginning of life. How about suicide? Do you know suicide is now considered in America a leading cause of death for Americans? Last year, close to 50,000 people took their own lives. That's one person every 11 minutes. What was really interesting, as I read the studies this week, is that 1.2 million Americans tried to kill themselves last year. So most suicides, thank God, are not quote-unquote successful. Particularly most women who try to kill themselves are not successful because they, men are much more violent in how they'll kill themselves. Women try to take pills, and oftentimes it doesn't work. And then at the end of life, there's assisted suicide, and there's euthanasia. And so at the beginning of life, throughout life, and at the end of life, we have a culture of death. Now, what is death? How do you define death? Because it's like, how are you? De- Anytime you go against God's decree or God's design, you're going down the path of death. And you'll see this, right? You know, it's like, well, God has a design for sexuality. And God has a design for marriage. So when you try to, people go, well, what about cohabitation? That's not part of God's design. Here's what you're saying when you cohabitate. I am willing to try you out and I'm okay for you to try me out and we can get out of this if either of us finds a better person. That's a hundred, whether you know that's what you're saying, that is 100% what cohabitation says. And now we have all the science. I love when science catches up to the Bible. Couples who cohabitate are more likely to get divorced. Things do not go well the further you get from God's original design for something. God has a design for the family. One man, one woman, one lifetime, raising kids both in the fear and encouragement and admonition of the Lord. Have you ever been in a home 
where mom and dad love each other and they know how to discipline their children and encourage them. It is about the most life-giving place you can go. Whenever you go to that home, you're like, can I live here? Do you have like a little closet under the, under the stairs where, like, where Harry Potter lived? I'll live there, you know? That's how you feel in those homes. Have you ever been to a home where everybody's lying all the time? Where, it, where there's just hiding and there's hypocrisy and you walk into the home and you can almost, I don't know, I don't know if it's spiritual, if it's psychological, you can almost feel it. Because mom told everybody there's five things we don't talk about when other people come over anymore. And you walk in and there's an elephant in the corner and there's a snake under the rug and there's a skeleton in the closet. And everybody's gotten far, how, you know, we're all getting, the further we get from God's design, the more it leads to death and destruction. Another way to think about death, in relationships, death is always that which creates distance. That's the definition of, death is separation. It's to be separated from your soul, your body and soul, that's what happens to death. It's to be separated from God, eternal death. It's to be separated from loved ones when you die. So death is that which creates distance. How many of you are making decisions in your marriages or with your kids that are creating distance? Well, let me give you the categories. Let me give you four categories where I think we choose life or death. Because he says, choose life and good or death and evil. I think the first category where we choose this is in our words. This is very biblical. The Bible says, life and death, this is a proverb, are in the power of the tongue. Are you a life giver with your words? Do you understand how powerful words are? You saw the video. Do you, you know that Barry, I've met Barry, hung out with Barry twice, both times he told me that story of his friend telling, telling me he has a servant heart. People need, I've told you this before, people need so little encouragement in life, and they get so little encouragement. And people have so, so few people in their life, if they didn't have a good dad or a good mom, they have so few people in their life who ever tell them anything encouraging about themselves. Are you a person who uses your words, the Bible says in Ephesians 4, to be an architect with your words? That's the Greek word. I'm somebody who uses my words to build instead of to break down. Most of us over time use our words more for death. Gossiping is a form of death. It's I will kill your reputation slowly and publicly. Gossip is when we confess other people's sins. The Bible says it's great to confess your sins. The Bible says it is not your job to confess other people's sins. For some of us, it's belittling. For some of us, it's just never saying anything, right? You just got back from Thanksgiving. You just got back from Christmas. It's like, how many things did you see in your family or your extended family that are an absolute mess and you said nothing? Except when you got in your car and then you told your wife or you told your husband. It's like, wrong person. Or at least not only person. How many, how many things we just watch people, it's like we're up watching a car accident happen. We're like, I know where this leads and I'm not going to say anything because I'm so afraid of how you're going to respond to me if I bring this up. Second area is in our finances. Finances are a gift, right? We've told you this before. There's, the Bible teaches that there's the godly rich and the ungodly rich, and there's the godly poor and there's the ungodly poor, and I don't have time to break in all four of those categories. But I will say that I have watched again and again and again, but mostly men. Women do this too, but women tend to wake up more in their 30s and realize money isn't everything. Men a lot of times don't wake from that spell. Um, but but I've, seen, I've seen men make so many foolish decisions when they, only, when they see money as the only dimension of their lives, right? Their wife is like dying. Like, could you work a little bit less and could we take a little bit more vacation? And it's all reasonable requests. And the guy's like, no, I can't, I can't. It's like, you can't? Your kids are dying here. You need, it's too expensive. Is it? 
Because your other hobbies and habits that you have are kind of expensive, but you have no problem doing them. What, what happens is, is men especially, they see only the dimension of finances. They're, not, they're unable, this is why you'll see guys and they're very, very successful. And there's nothing wrong with being very, very successful. But then you look, and this isn't always, but at least half the time when I meet somebody who's very successful, it doesn't take me long to see what it costs them to be that successful. It's like, oh, you're on your fourth marriage and your adult children hate you. You know, and you're, and you're unhealthy and you're addicted. And so one dimension of your life is doing well to the exclusion of the other five to seven dimensions of your life that are important. Thirdly, it's in our relationships. We have to choose, you know this, your life is only as good or bad as your closest relationships. What does it look like to choose life in your marriage? To say, you know what, we're gonna work on this. I'm gonna be a husband that serves and sacrifices and lays down his life and, and loves you. And I'm gonna be a wife that responds in submission and respect, and together we're gonna build a family, and we're gonna keep short accounts, and we're gonna forgive one another. What, what does it mean to choose life with your kids? I've told you this before, but I don't think we talk enough about the pleasures of parenting. We, talk, we joke about the burdens of waking up in the morning and all how difficult. You can have the best relationship possible with your kids if you want it. You're gonna know them all your life. If you will prioritize them, if you will pay attention to them, if you will be very careful, you can have the best relationship with your children, better than you can have with any one of your friends and potentially almost anybody else you will ever meet in life. No one tells people this, but you have to choose it. You have to pursue it. And finally, your health, right? How many of us are choosing a slow suicide with our health? I mean, the way that you eat and drink is self-destructive. And your wife said something to you or your husband said something to you, the way that you self-medicate. I'm convinced that most people, they use the last three to five hours of their life, or sorry, of their other day, so they're night. They put their, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you don't have kids, it's like from 5.30 or 6 o'clock on. If you have kids, it's from like 8 or 9 o'clock on when they go to bed. Most people use the last three to five hours of their night not to build their life, but to try and escape their life. Through drinking a ton, through watching six episodes of some show that they've already seen, through mindlessly scrolling, you know, social media next to their, you know, husband or wife who's mindlessly scrolling social media, not connecting with one another. Well, here's how Moses ends. He says this. In verse um, 16, he says this. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his way and keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live, picture of life, and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Verse 17, but if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today, you shall surely perish, a picture of death. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. Verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. And one more time, he, he kind of begs them. I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. Look at this, that you and your offspring might live. 
See, one of the things you realize is that your life matters a lot more than you probably want it to. <laughs> and the choices that you make, especially you, dad, has a huge influence on your kids. Some of you need to go, I need to choose life. I need to start choosing life right now so that there's in my family a legacy and a lineage of choosing life and not choosing death. Some of you can look back and you're like, my dad and my mom, the divorce happened 10 years ago. Before the divorce, 10 years before that was just a decision of death and distance and destruction. You can look back on some addiction, right? Addiction, the biblical word for addiction is slavery. That's someone in your family had and how it's influenced and affected. I mean, I can look back at this in my family generations back and stories that I've been told about people back in my family and how it affected people. So here's what I want to ask you as we close. Do you want things to get better or do you want things to get worse in your life? Do you want things to get better in your marriage? I'm not sure everybody does because I think if things get better, maybe you want things. I've heard stories before where someone finds out that their husband was doing something or their wife was doing something and about half of them to 25% of them is glad because they weren't really into the relationship. Maybe this gives them a way out. Do you want things to get better at your workplace? Maybe you don't because then maybe your boss will get credit. Maybe you kind of are mad at the whole company and the whole structure and you don't want to do your job very well. Do you want things to get better with your kids? Because sometimes you don't. You know, No one wants to admit that maybe they can be mad at their own kids. But your kid hasn't been listening and now he's an adult. Maybe you'd like to see his or her life. There's a dark part of you that'd like to see him fail so that he realizes he's going in the wrong direction. I think what happens, the great posture of the human heart, I think the circumcised heart, the posture of the circumcised heart is, I would like things to get better. Could you walk into your master bedroom and say, I want, whatever represents this room, I'd like things to get better in here. Here's what happens. As soon as you say that, a bunch of things are gonna come to your mind that you're gonna need to do. That's how you know you're thinking about this biblically. If you're thinking, I want things to get better, here's what my wife needs to do, then you're not thinking about it rightly. If you walk into your bedroom and you say, I'd like things to get better, I know what's gonna happen because it's happened to me. Here's what's gonna happen. Then things about you are gonna have to change. And it's gonna be the worst things about you that you still love that need to change. You're like, I'd like to be a better dad. My kids are really young. Here's what this means. I'm gonna need to spend more time with them on the ground doing things that they wanna do. I have to, this is a biblical principle. I have to go to them because they can't come to me. You, you want things to get better in your finances. You're gonna have to make decisions. I'm asking everyone today to start aiming up, to no longer aim down, to aim up. Now, why do people not aim? We know why people don't aim. People don't aim because they're afraid they're gonna miss. And because as soon as you aim, you actually create the conditions on which you could fail. So say you said, we're, we're gonna do devotions every day as a family. Great, you just created how much of a failure you could be. Because then you're like, we did it three times this week. But here's what happens if you don't aim. If you don't aim, then you fail all the time. I've seen this. If you don't aim, you fail all the time, and then you don't realize it till you're like 50. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I've been failing for 20 years. But I kept it like, so I didn't see it. And then it's just too much and it overwhelms me all at one time. So here's where you start. You start with the things you do every day. The things that repeat every day are the most important things in your life. Would you choose life over death?
Would you aim up and not down? Would you choose to make things better and not worse? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. The gospel is the picture of life and death. It has actually the upside down, inside out picture that Jesus, you, the author and perfecter of our faith, the author and sustainer of life, the living God died, chose death, embraced death so that dead sinners like me could come alive. Dead sinners like us could be made alive, Lord. One of the things we realize is we decide that we're gonna walk on the path of life, it often feels like death, Lord. It often feels like self-sacrifice. Lord, would you give us the strength to just choose maybe one area of our life where we need to say, I'm going to choose life and not death. Lord, would you give us, when we walk into our car, when we go into our home, when we walk into our neighborhood, when we walk into our office, would you by grace give us this thought, Lord, I'm aiming at making things better according to what the Bible says. Would you give me the grace to do it? Lord, give us this vision. We believe if this happens, this, that type of mentality and heart is the type of mentality that changes families, churches, and cities. We pray this in Jesus' name.